Hey, Reveal listeners, if you've been listening to American Rehab, you don't need me to tell you about the importance of great investigative journalism. It really helps us when our listeners rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It's so easy to do, and it helps others find our show. So we've got a bonus for the next 200 people who review us, Reveal Tote Bags. Like our t-shirts, they're simple and elegant, dark blue with the word facts written across the front in bold type. So here's what you got to do. Text the word REVIEW to 474747, and we'll give you instructions on how to get one while supplies last. Again, text the word REVIEW to 474747. You can text STOP at any time, and standard rates apply. And when you leave the review, if you want to tell them that Al Ledson is your all-time favorite host, I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to be mad at that. Thank you so much for your review on Apple Podcasts. It makes a huge difference. From the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Ledson. Before we start today's show, you should know that it deals with graphic allegations of sexual assault something that the country has been wrestling with a lot lately. Dr. Ford, with what degree of certainty do you believe Brett Kavanaugh assaulted you? 100%. I categorically and unequivocally deny the allegation against me by Dr. Ford. Brett Kavanaugh's Supreme Court confirmation raised a lot of questions about how we deal with accusations of sexual assault. Here's how President Donald Trump dealt with Dr. Ford's accusation. How did you get home? I don't remember. How'd you get there? I don't remember. Where is the place? I don't remember. How many years ago was it? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. And on Twitter, Trump suggested that if the assault really happened, law enforcement would have been involved and charges would have been filed. In other words, there'd be proof because the police would have investigated this. But Trump's own Justice Department says that only about 20% of survivors ever report these crimes to police. Let's look at the president's other assumption, that after sexual assault is reported, police would fully investigate, that they'd get to the bottom of it, justice would be served. When the president tweeted that, we were wrapping up an investigation that took over a year, looking at how rapes are really handled in our criminal justice system. We teamed up with reporters Mark Greenblatt of Newsy, the online and cable news network, and Bernice Young of ProPublica. Together, we looked at more than 70,000 reported rapes from scores of law enforcement agencies and prosecutors all over the country. We read hundreds of detailed police reports and followed court cases from start to finish. What we want to know, are police solving as many rape cases as they claim? And if they aren't, who's getting hurt? Mark and Bernice begin in Illinois on a case that will take them around the country. Mark and I are in Peoria to meet Andy Leischer. He's 37 years old, a friendly guy with a full beard and a quiet voice, built sort of like a big teddy bear. We want to talk to him because he took a risk to try and bring a man to justice. We're at a park by the Illinois River. That's where the three of us find a picnic table in a wide field away from playgrounds and ball fields, We want to find somewhere quiet to talk. By day, Andy works as a youth pastor. That's his passion. But it's never paid very much, so he's always had other jobs. As much as my call is to be a pastor, my call is to be hospitable to people. and um, I get to express that through uh, being a front desk clerk at, at a hotel. He likes connecting with people he would ordinarily never meet. I think sometimes conversations are just meant to take place and you get to experience humanity with people on a little bit deeper level. Up the highway a few hours away in Janesville, Wisconsin, Andy used to work the night shift at a Ramada Inn. It looks pretty typical, two stories, lots of brick with a parking lot all the way around. Inside, all the hallways open onto a big arched glass atrium. There are arcade games in one corner, a swimming pool, a hot tub, and security cameras linked to a monitor at the front desk. One night while keeping an eye on those security cameras, Andy notices a girl in the hot tub. He guesses she's about 16. For a 16-year-old kid uh, to be able to go hang out at a hotel room with a pool and a jacuzzi, I mean, it seems trivial to us, but for for a kid, I mean, that's exciting stuff. And it's Janesville. It's not that exciting. 
Andy recognizes the girl. She's been a guest there before. And from his spot at the front desk, through the video feed, he sees someone else in the hot tub with her. It's a man. He looks older than she is. Too old. Tell me about the first time you can remember seeing this individual, this older man, hanging out at the Ramada that you worked at? Um, the hot tub, yeah. What do you a, remember? Them just being really uh, a little too close, uh, um, even even through the uh, security camera, it just felt awkward. Yeah, I mean, they were there was an intimacy happening, kissing and that kind of thing. Real kisses, like yeah. mouth to mouth. Yeah. In the hot tub? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you don't know details, right? So it's not like you run out there and bust up whatever's going on. After all, privacy is part of what guests are buying. So Andy just watches. And he worries. Watches the teenager and the man go upstairs to their room. Worries as they leave the hotel arm-in-arm, laughing. They had just walked out, in fact, when a young man walks in. He's delivering takeout for another guest and happens to know the girl. He saw them leaving uh, the hotel, and he said hi to her or whatever, and then came in to deliver a a sandwich. Um, He said, man, I wish I could do something about that. And I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, you know, she's only like 16, and he's 26 or something like that and turns out no actually he's like 31 um and i said well um tell me tell me more about that and he said well um she's been seeing him for a while now and everybody just wants it to stop but nobody does anything about it pastor andy decides somebody should i just said well i mean if if you can't i will andy calls the cops Eventually, he'll find out that police in a state hundreds of miles away knew a lot about this man, could have arrested him, but didn't. But right now, Andy knows nothing more than what he'd seen. What was at stake in your mind? The rest of that girl's life. But she looked, did she look in duress? No. She actually seemed to be enjoying her time, but I mean, that didn't make it okay. About an hour after sunset on a Monday evening in May, two Janesville police officers showed up at the Ramada Inn. The girl had already gone home. The officers confronted the man at the door of his room and confirmed that he was 31 years old. He admitted to kissing the girl. Police seized his belongings, including two cell phones. And they arrested him. His name is Brian Sean Kind. We're not naming the girl or any possible victim of sex abuse unless they choose to be named. Last spring, more than a year after his arrest, Brian sits in a courtroom in Janesville. He's got a small build, blonde hair, and he's wearing an orange prison uniform. All right, I have two files. They're both entitled State of Wisconsin versus Brian S. Kind. During this pretrial hearing, the prosecutor asked Thomas Beshin, lead detective on the case, about his interview with the girl the night Brian Kind was arrested. Did you ask her uh, about what had happened with her and the defendant? I did. And what did she inform you had occurred? Uh, she admitted that they began dating on April 1st of 2016 uh, when she was 15 years old. Uh, initially, she denied that there was any sexual contact, but uh, admitted to kissing, going on dates, um, that type of activity. However, eventually she did say that they had sexual contact, and she estimated approximately 200 times. Approximately 200? Correct. Brian Kind wouldn't agree to talk to us and on this day in court, said nothing, including about that accusation that he had sex with a teenager 200 times. Police say the girl was 15 when the relationship started, 16 by the time Brian was arrested. The police report says the two met online, that Brian regularly drove more than 300 miles from his hometown in Michigan to Wisconsin, taking the girl to the movies, shopping, and out for ice cream. The police report says he was upset when she planned to go to her senior prom, that the girl skipped it to stay with him at a hotel instead. We talked to people who know Brian in the small town where he grew up. The police chief remembers arresting Brian for bounce checks, then drugs. His mom called him a good student and a good worker, but immature, like 31, going on 18, she said. 
In Janesville, Brian Kind could face decades in prison for sexual assault of a minor. And it's not just that. Detective Beshin tells me that when police examined Brian's two cell phones, they found pictures of the girl and other girls, too. Um, this wasn't the first child that he had had this type of a, a contact with. This isn't the first child he had um, you know, pornographic images of. Um, to me, that would lead to a pattern of behavior. It is not that he just had pornographic images of children that maybe he downloaded online. These were pictures that he took himself. Some of them that he probably took or, or, or directed the child to take. Police found evidence that made them suspect Brian Kind is a repeat offender. Three total girls that we found, um, the local girl uh, in our area, in the Janesville area, a uh, girl from the Baltimore area, and then a girl from Ohio. Janesville, Wisconsin, outside Baltimore, Maryland, and Ohio. They suspected he had contact with underage girls in at least three states. So Detective Betjen shared what he knew with police in those other states. And he found out something really disturbing. He found out that 800 miles away, in a suburb of Baltimore, police already knew about Brian Kind. They had, in fact, spent more than a year building a case against him for an alleged sexual relationship with another teenage girl. They never arrested him, but made it look like the case had been solved. How could that happen, and why? That's what Mark and Bernice wanted to find out. When we come back, they head to Baltimore looking for answers. That's coming up on Reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. Reveal is brought to you by the University of Virginia and the Sacred and Profane podcast. We often hear it's not polite to bring up religion, but we lose so much when we don't talk about religion. Sacred and Profane is a podcast that isn't afraid to tackle religion. Next up, how white Christians built and maintained Confederate monuments across the U.S. Sacred and Profane is produced by the Religion, Race, and Democracy Lab at the University of Virginia. Catch season two wherever you listen to podcasts. Support for Reveal comes from Blinds.com. Transforming your home into even more of a sanctuary is easy and affordable with Blinds.com. They make it simple to shop top quality blinds, shades, and interior shutters from home with easy online ordering and free shipping. Blinds.com has helped millions of homeowners through the process, and they guarantee the perfect fit whether you DIY or have them install everything for you. Go right now and see how much you can save at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. From the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Letson. When we left off, we were on the trail of an alleged child predator, a man now in his 30s named Brian Kind. He's currently facing trial in Wisconsin for allegedly raping a teenage girl there. But we also found out that police, hundreds of miles away in Maryland, spent more than a year investigating him in a very similar case. Police there never arrested him or pressed charges, and he went free. Bernice Young of ProPublica and Mark Greenblatt of Newsy have been investigating what happened. A warning before we pick up the story, it contains disturbing allegations of sexual abuse. We got our hands on a report put together by police in Howard County, Maryland. It says Brian Kind met a girl online, a local girl, who was just 12 years old. 12 years old. Take a minute and think about that. A girl not even a teenager, a middle schooler, just starting to figure out who she is in the world. From the police report, we know a few things about her, that she has shoulder-length hair and shows her teeth when she smiles. When she writes, she colors in her exclamation points. And we know that she and Brian Kind sign many of their messages by spelling out moi, the sound of a kiss. Police say she was 13 by the time Brian meets her in person in Howard County. That's where we head to the suburbs outside Baltimore. Oh, there's the Wendy's. Right on the corner. Yeah, there it is. We made it. This is our first stop in reconstructing the case that Howard County Police built against Brian Kind. The police report says Brian met the young girl for the first time in person, right here. Here it is that the, the victim stated that she got herself over to Wendy's in order to meet Brian Kind, and they had lunch. July 2015, he had driven from Michigan to Maryland to come to this very Wendy's. 
to have lunch with a 13-year-old here. Taking a child out to someplace special, someplace fun, buying them treats. Child therapists tell us it's one of the ways that predators groom potential victims. In the evidence file, we find two video interviews the lead Howard County detective did with the girl and her parents. In one video, the girl wears jean shorts and shoes with bright pink laces. She fidgets as she talks, while the detective leans in and listens closely. In the other video, the girl tells the detective that being with Brian felt protective. They compared themselves to Romeo and Juliet. The girl's stepdad tells her, if he's doing it to you, he's doing it to someone else. The same detective interviewed the girl four times over six months, learning new details with each conversation. The detective spent months building trust with the girl and pieced together a bunch of evidence, including photos, phone records, and hotel receipts. She boiled it all down into straightforward bullet points, typed into the police report. That's what guided Mark and me to the Wendy's, where police say Brian Kind first met with the girl. And it's what we used to follow their journey from there. So this is the second interview that the detective does with her. Once again, the Wendy's is brought up for lunch, but this time she talks about a hotel motel. By now, the detective is sort of piecing things together, right? That Brian Kind had stayed in a place called the Homestyle Inn. At the Homestyle Inn, twice in July, once in September 2015, she says that she had sex with Brian Kind. So she's she's really coming out for the first time admitting that they had sex in this hotel motel. You want to go check it out? Let's go check it out. The Wendy's is in Howard County, cul-de-sac suburbia west of Baltimore, crisscrossed by big, busy roads like this one. We hit a big bump as we crossed the county line. We just drove from Howard County, uh, where the young victim lives, across the county line into Baltimore County, which is in where this hotel is. is on your right, home style in. So we're, we're a mile away now. It's just across the county line, and that one mile seems to have made all the difference in this case. All the difference because even though Howard County Police spent nearly a year investigating, the alleged sex crime happened across the county line in Baltimore County. Oh my gosh. Homestyle in with the special rates starting at $49.99 plus tax. I see rust on the walls, paint scraping off. It's a two-story motel with these teal doors, brick facade. You can see kind of almost straight into the rooms themselves. The windows are covered with these curtains that look like they've been hanging there for a long, long time. It's just truly a decrepit building. But there's a guy standing in the doorway. In room 245, that's the room where they were in. There's someone in there right now standing out looking at us. It looks like the place of, like, last resort, you know? You got nowhere else to go. They've got the single occupancy, you know, sign out front. It's just... It's just grim. We leave, bothered by this place, and what authorities say happened here. Howard County investigated this case for close to a year, They did a very detailed investigation. Interviews with the girl, phone records, hotel receipts. But ultimately, Howard County prosecutors sent the case to neighboring Baltimore County because that's where the alleged rapes happened. We requested interviews with Howard County police, but they declined. And when all this was handed over to Baltimore County, the investigation stalled. The case was open for six months, but police there added no new investigative information. Baltimore County Police spokesman Sean Vinson agreed to talk to Mark by phone, but he wouldn't let us record his end of the conversation. Hey, I'm okay, Sean. How are you doing? Mark asked Sean about what happened with the Brian Kind investigation. Just so I have the facts right here. So it looked, so you received the case in December of 2016 from Howard County, you're saying? Sean says a detective from Baltimore County tried to get in touch with the girl's family. The next five months... Detectives say that they were attempting to make contact with the victim uh, or the family. Baltimore County records show a detective there talked to the girl's mother at least once. His notes say the mother told him that she would talk to her family about next steps. 
When he didn't hear back, the report says he sent a letter telling them he planned to suspend the case, which he did two weeks later. Sean confirms all of this. There's no record of any kind of any contact or interview with the suspect, Brian Kind, uh, by detectives. Um, Is it accurate to say they, they never interviewed the suspect? They hadn't. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you, Corporal. In a later email, Sean says they never interviewed or arrested Brian Kind because the alleged victim and her family didn't participate in the investigation. He says it's all about a child-centered approach, making the welfare of child victims the top priority, not the success of the criminal investigation or prosecution. The department does acknowledge a better option may be to review all these types of cases with prosecutors before suspending them. And experts tell us there's even more that could have been done. For instance, police could have used the evidence they had to try to force a confession. And they could have tried that while still protecting the victim. We want to parse the Maryland investigation in more detail. So we drive two hours north to downtown Philadelphia to talk to an expert who can evaluate this case. My name's Tom McDevitt. I'm a retired lieutenant, Philadelphia Police Department. Tom investigated sex crimes for the Philadelphia police for most of his career. I thought we were really good. I mean, I thought we were the best. There's no doubt about it. He was commander of the sex crimes unit in 1999 when a news expose on the Philadelphia police broke. It showed that for years, Philly cops would make legitimate rape cases disappear by wrongly categorizing them as false or baseless reports. Tom's chief assigned him to work closely with women's advocates to review all of those cases. Day after day, file after file, he tells us this process changed him. And I can tell you that after looking at thousands of cases, there was a day that I looked over at the other lieutenant and said, how did we get this bad? These days, Tom trains police across the country in how to investigate sexual assault cases. We brought Tom all the files on Brian Kind and asked him to give us his take on how police handled the case. There is no record of uh, an interview at any point with the suspect. Uh, What do you make of that? Well, I can tell you that if if it was my investigation, uh, we would have had him interviewed. We would have had either the local police department or the Internet Crimes Task Force. Almost every state has one, uh, which consists of local and federal authorities. Go out to his home, interview him. uh, Would obtain search warrants for his computer and his phone. Why? You need that. I mean, more than likely, he's going to tell you what happened. You get a confession from him. It's more likely that you don't have to have the victim testify. Uh, You're going to gather more evidence from his computer, stuff that may have been not been able to have been retrieved on on her phone. Howard County, which did the detailed investigation, collected more than 70 pages of text messages and emails going back and forth between Brian Kind and the young girl. Many are goofily romantic, but in some... Brian cautions the girl to keep quiet. In one, he writes, you know you can't tell anyone I come to see you. In another, he tells her, you have to understand what would happen if they see me with you. We ask Tom what he sees in the messages. In the emails, it was obvious that they had some kind of sexual relationship. When he talks about, you know, her laying in his lap and crying and saying you love me, and he he gets... The age difference and the difference between us, you know, plus the whole world against us, my opinion is that this type of person hasn't matured. He may have a job or something else, but emotionally, he hasn't matured past a certain age, and he's more likely to tell you what happened when you question him. So here on this document, which is kind of the last page of the police file that we have, From Baltimore County, it says... We show Tom the place in the report we found where Baltimore County police say how they resolved the case, how Brian Kind was never charged or arrested. But police were able to make it look like a success. The report is marked X-clear. That's police shorthand for exceptional clearance. An exceptional clearance means that you know the crime, you're able to prove a crime occurred. You have a victim. You know where the person is and who they are, the defendant. And either the prosecutor doesn't want to prosecute or the victim doesn't want to go forward with the case. An official at the Department of Justice tells us that exceptional clearance is supposed to be used rarely. For example, when a suspect can't be arrested because they're dead or already in prison, a victim won't cooperate or a prosecutor refuses to take the case. 
But even then, police have to meet a high bar. FBI rules require that the police still need to have enough evidence for an arrest in order to exceptionally clear the case. But here's the thing. Exceptionally cleared cases are often presented to the public as solved, even though no arrest is ever made and no charges are ever filed, and the suspect remains on the streets. They're included in crime stats many police agencies use to show what a good job they're doing. It turns out that this is a pretty common practice for Baltimore County. We reviewed three years of crime data from the county and found that they reported really impressive clearance rates for rape. 70% in 2016. That's getting close to double the national average. But when we unpacked those numbers, we found that more than half of those rape cases were cleared by exceptional means, meaning no suspect was ever arrested or charged with a crime. Take the Brian Kind case. There was a suspect and strong evidence. And police say the victim and her family were unresponsive and not cooperating with the investigation. So this case may meet the requirements for exceptional clearance, but it may not. We just don't know because Baltimore County Police won't comment directly about why they exceptionally cleared the case, in part because the county just got sued over how it handles rape investigations. But Tom says this is where exceptional clearance gets complicated, because the question is always, what more could police have done? In this case, he says, a lot. Did they work to build trust with the victim? And why didn't they interview the suspect? I think that the biggest thing to take from this in almost any sexual assault investigation is you have to handle this as if it was a homicide investigation. You have to do every single thing possible, and that includes gathering all the evidence you can. And don't ever miss the opportunity of talking to the defendant. And then you got to remember that you have to look at these cases that every single one of them has a potential to be a serial rapist. Baltimore County pushed back on Tom's analysis, questioning his expertise in Maryland law. We take what we learned to Pastor Andy Leischer, the man who called police when he saw Brian with another teenage girl at that hotel in Janesville, Wisconsin. Andy had no idea about Baltimore. He didn't know that there were other possible victims or that police in Maryland knew all about Brian but failed to stop him. Mark explains. It appears as if you may have actually stopped someone who has been on record and and, and on the radar of other police agencies Mm-hmm. Um, in other parts of the country. Andy is quiet. Mark tells him what Brian Kind was accused of in Maryland, then shows him the evidence. What's your take in just seeing a little bit of this right here? It's gross. It's really gross. They read through the emails and compare the dates. This police report was filed a year and a half before the incident in Janesville? That's correct. They should have prosecuted to the full extent of the law at that point. Why? What's at stake if they don't? More 13-year-old girls. Mark explains to Andy the way that Baltimore County cleared the case. So it turns out the leadership from the Baltimore County Police Department has talked about how their clearance rates are higher than the national average on things like the category of rape. When we dug into their crime statistics, we found that a lot of the crimes that they quote-unquote clear are similar to this, where they actually never make an arrest, clear the case exceptionally, leave the suspect on the streets, and move on. So they get a feather in their cap, and uh, it comes at a high price. What happened in Baltimore County? What police did there? Well, it may have shocked Andy, but it turns out police do this all the time. Mark and Bernice investigated law enforcement agencies across the country and found that in cases of rape, exceptional clearance is not so exceptional after all. So let's get the big picture. Mark, how did you start? Well, Al, we started by looking at how many rape cases law enforcement agencies say that they solve. More than 18,000 police departments report their crime stats to the FBI. But we found that when they report those stats, most big cities lump together all their cleared cases into one big number. 
So there's no way to tell which cases were cleared by arrest or by invoking exceptional means. They're all just marked cleared. And to the public, they all look like they're solved. In fact, many police departments actually describe their combined clearances as solved cases. But we knew it was more complicated than that. So how did you dig below those FBI numbers to figure out how many rape cases police are actually solving? So we asked law enforcement agencies for their raw numbers, and then we analyzed them. This was a big team effort really led by our colleague Mark Fahey over at Newsy. We reached out to every major jurisdiction in the U.S. with more than 300,000 people, and that's more than 100 city and county law enforcement agencies. We filed public records requests so we could run the numbers and calculate how many rape cases they cleared by arrest and then how many they cleared by exceptional means. And we got data back from more than 60 of them. And what we discovered was shocking. Almost half the big cities and counties took more rape cases off of their books by marking them exceptionally cleared than by actually arresting a suspect. That's according to their own numbers. So does that mean most clearances don't include an arrest? Well, in almost half the communities that we looked at, that's exactly what we found. Take Hillsborough County, Florida, where Tampa is. There's a really big sheriff's office there. And in 2016, if you look at the combined clearance rate, it looks really good, 65%. But when we analyzed their raw numbers, we found that only 12% of rape cases led to an arrest. And more than three times as many were cleared exceptionally. No arrest made and no charges filed in those cases. And we found very high exceptional clearance rates in lots of places. Oakland, California, and Austin, Texas are just two more examples. And in smaller cities, too, really just all over the map. A few law enforcement agencies cleared over 60% of their rape cases by exceptional means. And I should add that there were many cities and counties that did not turn over their data on clearance information, despite repeated asks. They include Washington, D.C., Pittsburgh, San Francisco, Cleveland, And because they wouldn't share their information, it's impossible to know how well police are doing when it comes to investigating rape. Are any of these cases that police are clearing by exceptional means actually false reports, ones that should really be taken off the books? No, that's something entirely different. If police think a sexual assault report is false or that maybe something happened but it wasn't a crime, police would categorize that as unfounded and they drop it from their crime counts. Yeah, and for police to clear a case by exceptional means, they have to have enough evidence against a suspect to establish probable cause. These are supposed to be good cases, arrestable cases. Again, the only reason police are supposed to use exceptional means is when something stands in their way of making an arrest. You mentioned that to the public, all of these rapes look solved. Are police departments actually massaging the numbers? Well, they're certainly not making any effort to spell out the differences between clearing a case by arresting someone uh, versus clearing it exceptionally. In fact, many departments uh, boast publicly about their high rape clearance rate, and and they never breathe a word that over half the time no one's been arrested. Uh, You hear this, for example, when police officials testify in front of city council. It's useful for law enforcement to look successful, especially at budget hearings when they come looking for money. So you guys spent a year on this. What's the takeaway? You know, to me, Al, it's that some cities are are really honest and transparent. And when they tell you that they cleared a bunch of rape cases, they really did. They really took a lot of people off the streets. Uh, but then uh, what you don't know is that there are other cities that don't do that, that are telling you that, that they're clearing a lot of cases, but that, in fact, it's, it's almost like a smokescreen. It's not really giving you a, an accurate representation of how well the, the police are doing. And for me, Al, it's really that, you know, all of these numbers, they mask what's really actually happening in the real world. We're presented with this picture that law enforcement is making our community safer by taking, you know, alleged rapists off the street, when really what's happening is they're just gaming the numbers. And and in the end, it's really the public that loses. People do not know how rape is really handled in their community. Mark, Bernice, thank you. Thank you, Al. You bet, Al. Coming up, Mark and Bernice take us to Austin, where police officials have repeatedly bragged to city council about their high clearance rates for rape. We'll introduce you to a whistleblower who says she was pushed to change the numbers. That's coming up on Reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. From the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Letson. Today, we're looking at how police handle sexual assault cases. Our reporting partners are ProPublica's Bernice Young and Newsy's Mark Greenblatt. 
Together, we reviewed data for more than 60 major American cities and counties. We found that when the police say a rape has been cleared, it doesn't always mean it's been solved. A lot of the time, suspects walk free. No arrest made, no accountability. One place that stands out for clearing cases this way is Austin, Texas. That's where Bernice and Mark follow the story next. Austin is a college town with a vibrant nightlife. Take a photo of this video. We're on 6th Street in downtown, a hub of bars and dance clubs. This strip stays busy most nights until the wee hours. Marina Connor came to 6th Street a lot when she was a student at UT Austin. She grew up in a small Texas town, but always dreamed of moving here, wanting to be around big thinkers by day, and like so many college students, to have fun at night. And she says she always felt safe. I didn't have any problem walking up and down the drag at night by myself or with just a friend, you know, walking to the corner store by myself at night. Wasn't scared about that. Walking on campus at night, definitely wasn't scared about that. One night on 6th Street three years ago, Marina and a friend sat on the curb waiting for a ride home. It was about 2 a.m. She says a man approached selling drugs. And he asked us if we went in to buy any cocaine. And the conversation turned into that we only wanted to buy it if it was good coke. And the man said, well, I will give her a bump if she comes into the alley with me and she can tell you if it's good or not. Marina doesn't remember everything about that moment, but she says many details are crystal clear. In fact, she says they're impossible to forget. And we should let you know that what she tells us is both violent and disturbing. This man leads me into the alley, um, leads me to a parking garage. Um, two, two men were there. Um, the man that led me into the parking garage, he slammed my head against the wall, um, and then he raped me. Um, I, I remember crying. <laughs> I, remember, I remember saying, stop. And no, and um, and I remember the pain mostly is what I remember how painful it was every time he penetrated me is what I remember the most. And, yeah. Marina's eyes are distant, and her face sometimes tightens as she describes that night. We're talking in the living room of her small Austin apartment. She still can't fully remember how she got home. I woke up in my bed, um, my underwear were gone, um, and then things slowly started coming back to me, and then it just hit me that I had been raped. Later that night, Marina's sister took her to a local organization for sexual assault victims, where staff helped her get a medical exam and call police. It was about 24 hours after the rape. I did not, in that moment, I did not understand why women didn't report. I did not get it. Like, I knew I was raped, and I was like, why would you not report to the justice system that is going to find your rapist, prosecute him, and put him in jail? Like, why would you not do that? Austin police, just like police in many places around the country, point to their clearance rates as a measure of how well they're doing solving crimes like rape. Here's then-assistant chief Brian Manley, at a public safety commission meeting in 2016. We also uh, wanted to educate council uh, on where we stand with our crime clearance rates. That is uh, uh, a very uh, critical and and appropriate measure of of our performance. And we're fortunate that we do exceed the national averages on all categories, as you can see with the homicide, the rapes, all three categories of robberies lumped together. Manley flips through papers in his dark blue uniform. The silver stars on his collar match his silver hair. When he testifies as interim chief at city council the following year, his message stays the same. Again, he notes his department is exceeding the national average for solving crimes. All right, on the activity reports... Councilman Jimmy Flanagan asks what he should make of the clearance rates. Is, is percent of violent and property crimes cleared a, a number that is at all useful? Is this number actually being used as a metric operationally? 
Yes, it is. We compare ourselves nationally, and, and we are above all of the, uh, of the uh, standards uh, that we're compared to. I have the numbers here if you want them as far as our clearance rates, but clearance rates show the effectiveness of the work that we're doing. So if, to us, we consider that a bad thing if our clearance rate is down. We want a high clearance rate. But a longtime Austin police insider says there's a big difference between wanting a high clearance rate and earning one. Either Chief Manley is being given bad information from those working underneath him or, you know, they're trying to purport something that's not true or they are reporting something that's not true. Liz Donegan retired from Austin's police department almost a year ago after a quarter century on the force and nearly a decade as the sergeant in charge of the sex crimes unit. This is the first time she's come forward about the way Austin PD handles rape crimes. At my level, I don't understand why you would not report something accurately. I don't get it. You know, and that's maybe why I got in trouble. Liz is a nationally recognized leader who regularly trains other police agencies on how to better investigate rape and how to treat victims. Knowing her reputation, I ask Liz, what did you do to get in trouble? I had been told on two different occasions from the same commander under two different lieutenants that I needed to go back in and look at these cases that were suspended and change the clearance code because we were not up to the national average of exceptional clearance in Austin. Strict requirements must be met before police can clear cases exceptionally. But Liz says the cases her bosses wanted her to change did not meet those requirements. Still, she says she was pressured to change cases from suspended to exceptionally cleared so that they would look like they were solved. That would help the city stack up better against other police departments around the country. And I told them that if information comes in that lends itself to this particular investigation that would have us change the case closure, then that will happen. But me going in and looking at these cases is not going to change the case closure. It is what it is. Liz tells me defying her boss's orders came with a cost. Well, you know, I don't know what was going on behind the scenes. I mean, I can only guess. But, you know, I eventually was removed from the unit. That was in 2011. The next year, exceptional clearances spiked. In 2012, we found the share of rape cases cleared by exceptional means shot up by 50%. Higher rates continue through today, making it appear like the police solve more rapes than they actually do. For more than a month, Austin police ignored our requests for an interview. But after the mayor's office intervened, calling the allegations very serious, Chief Manley agreed to talk with us. In the police headquarters media room, he sat near a Texas flag and a dark wooden podium. Mark outlined Liz's claims to the chief. Sergeant Donegan's assertions are that she was told, directed on multiple occasions to go back in and change clearance codes for the crime of rape from suspended to exceptionally cleared. And she said, it was wrong to do, and she refused the order. Yeah, I think there was a difference of opinions on what the appropriate way to clear cases were. You, you have no reason to believe she's not trustworthy. No, I'm not here to make character assessments. I think we're here to talk about the data and all, and I think that if we get back on to what we're here to talk about, it was a difference of opinions back in 2011, 2012. Chief Manley says that in 2012, supervisors analyzed how the department handled rape investigations. They concluded they weren't doing it right, that too many cases were listed as suspended when they should have been exceptionally cleared. So they started clearing more cases by exceptional means after Liz Donegan left, in the way that she'd refused to do. Chief Manley says that's what accounts for the jump in exceptional clearances. In 2016, there were more than 800 rapes reported to police in Austin. Of those, 4% were thrown out as false or baseless. Half of the rest were cleared. But look at how. Suspects were only arrested 17% of the time. Twice as often, 33% of the time, reported rapes were cleared by exceptional means. Mark asks Chief Manley about telling a city council member that Austin has high crime clearance rates. 
why did the chief not also mention Austin's high rate of exceptional clearances? Should you not also have gone on to tell him we only uh, are arresting maybe 17 or 20 percent a year, and perhaps that's information that he would have valued in that interchange? I believe I gave him a fair and accurate answer to his question. Without going into how many crimes were cleared exceptionally versus how often you make arrests. Again, I gave him a fair and accurate response, and I explained what that data is and how we stood compared to our comparative cities. Liz Donegan sees it differently. I think it gives it a a false sense to the community that this case has been thoroughly investigated and it's closed. It's not truthful. And I, I think it just gives the appearance that we're able to clear more of these rapes than we actually are. Data shows Austin exceptionally cleared more than 1,400 rape cases between 2012 and 2017. That means they didn't arrest anyone in those cases. With the rapes that are exceptionally cleared, you do believe that the Austin Police Department, something in the case file, means that you've gathered enough evidence to support an arrest. Yes. I couldn't exceptionally clear it otherwise. That means there are 1,416 people out there who the Austin Police Department has established probable cause to make an arrest on, but has not made the arrest, there is no prosecution, and they're on the streets. That's a lot of people out there that you have probable cause to make an arrest on that you're not arresting. It's the unfortunate reality of sexual assault in this country is that the process itself, unfortunately, keeps many survivors from wanting to participate in the process and ultimately the prosecution. Is it really the victim's fault or is there something going on within the Austin Police Department that maybe is not helping those victims uh, feel as comfortable or, or as safe? in talking to to your agency? Is it really fair to blame the victims here? I'm not blaming the victims and and their survivors, by the way, but I'm not blaming them. If we've got a survivor who initially is unwilling to participate in the investigative process, the detective will not stop the investigation at that point. They will still track down every possible lead and work that case as far as they can. And then at that point, if the survivor is still unwilling to cooperate, then it would be exceptionally cleared. But let's go back to Marina, the Austin College student. I told my detective I wanted to be involved in every step. I told her that from the beginning, that I wanted to be there. Austin PD won't comment on her case or share her police report with us. Marina says they also haven't given it to her. But she says police did tell her they found the rape suspect. Um, he describes me to a T. He described my outfit from that night. Um, and he said that we had consensual sex. Marina's medical exam after that night documented bruises, tears, and trauma. On the form, in a section marked Impression from Exam, the examiner typed sexual assault, among other findings. Police let the man go, waiting for the rape kit samples to come back from the lab. That took two years, and the lab didn't find DNA evidence. Marina says she learns this from the police detective. I'd finally gone to some therapy and was returning to school that August, and she called me two weeks before I was about to start back to tell me that my case was closed. Marina couldn't believe it. We reached out to the district attorney's office here in Travis County, and they wouldn't comment on Marina's case, but did say they have additional facts they can't share with us right now, and that having enough evidence to arrest isn't the same as having enough to convict. Marina tells us she was angry and insisted on talking to the prosecutor in the case. And then I sat down with her, and she immediately started to try to talk. I told her no. I was like, you're going to let me talk? I described my rape to her. I made her look at me while I told her what happened to me. I was like, you're going to look at me as a person, as a survivor, not as this file sitting in front of you. And you're going to tell me why you're not prosecuting my rapist. And um, she told me the CSI effect. The CSI effect, meaning juries are influenced by crime TV shows like CSI, or DNA always saves the day. But in this case, the man confirmed to police he had sex with Marina 
He gave the place and the date. The issue wasn't that. It was whether this was consensual. Do you believe a jury should have been allowed to weigh in on this? That's all I wanted, was to be in a courtroom with him. We learned that Marina's case was exceptionally cleared and told her. I didn't know that my case was considered exceptionally cleared. It's just very offensive to me that they're using me and using my case to make it look like the city's safe. Mark and Bernice, you raised some big questions about how much people can trust rape clearance numbers from police. So what are folks supposed to do? Well, people can start to ask police about the difference and point it out publicly. For example, at city council meetings like the one that we heard in Austin. The FBI is also, I should note, slowly migrating to a different system of tracking crime. It's much more detailed, and police will be specifically required to report to the feds how many cases they exceptionally clear and say why. But transparency alone does not necessarily solve this whole problem because we've looked at the cities who are using the new system and found that many continue to have very high exceptional clearance rates compared to arrests for rape. So some survivors have chosen to do what Marina has done. After her rape kit sat untested for years and her case was not prosecuted, she joined a lawsuit with other plaintiffs to sue the city of Austin and Travis County for failing to bring justice to victims. Okay, so most of the stories we heard today focused on how police are making it look like they've solved cases when they've only cleared them. But as we just heard with Marina's story, prosecutors are also a big part of the problem. And that's what we're going to focus on next week, right? Yeah, we go to Minnesota and meet a woman who accused a man of raping her. Prosecutors there refuse to charge him, so she does her own detective work. She actually cuts a hole into a teddy bear and hides a camera inside. We have the secret recordings she made from that. I can't wait to hear. Thank you both very much. Thank you, Al. Thank you, Al. Mark Greenblatt and Mark Fahey of Newsy, along with ProPublica's Bernice Young, reported today's show. Our lead producer was Emily Harris. Brett Myers edited the show with help from Andy Donahue. And Newsy's Lawan Hamilton and Ellen Weiss. Special thanks to Zach Kusan, Kenny Jacoby, Vic Narayan, and Luke Piotrowski of Newsy. Michael Corey and Eric Segarra of Reveal. And Sophie Chow, Robin Fields, Lena Grauger, Ryan Grahowski-Jones, and CC Way of ProPublica. Our production manager is Mwende Inahosa. Our sound design team is my man, Jay Breezy, Mr. Jim Briggs, and Fernando, my man, Yo Aruda. They had help from Caitlin Benz and Catherine Raimondo. Our CEO is Krista Scharfenberg. Our senior supervising editor is Taki Telenitas. Our executive producer is Kevin Sullivan. Our theme music is by Camarado, Lightning. Support for reveals provided by the Reva and David Logan Foundation, the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, the Jonathan Logan Family Foundation, the Ford Foundation, the Heising Simons Foundation, and the Ethics and Excellence in Journalism Foundation. Reveal is a co-production of the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. I'm Al Ledson, and remember, there is always more to the story.